0: Open your Bibles to the Song of Songs, also known as the Song of Solomon, Shirir Hashirim. I asked some folks who have been longtime Emanuel members. I've asked several. To my knowledge, no one has preached a sermon series from the Song of Songs uh, at least in 46 years. That's kind of the number I'm getting, and that's because the rest of the preachers had no guts. That's why I, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. They're good men, but. I am uh, 50 years old, been preaching for 30 years. I've never preached a sermon series from the Song of Songs. I've taught it at the seminary. I have uh, delivered sections of it at marriage conferences and things. But I have never preached a sermon series from the Song of Songs. And so I will go ahead and tell you the commentaries, the the preachers. A, a couple of years ago, one of my favorite preachers, David Jeremiah, did a sermon series through the Song of Songs. Uh, but The preachers, the commentaries, the study Bibles, the outlines for the Song of Songs are all over the place. It's one of the most challenging books in the Bible to outline. So I'm going to do the best I can, but I appreciate your prayers. And so I am. Before we get into this, I want to say something. There's a a lot of our young preachers have um, have become enthralled with the book. And I'm just going to be real honest. I've heard some people say some embarrassing things based on the Song of Songs. And part of preaching this sermon series is my desire to uh, show that you don't have to talk dirty to preach from the Bible. And I'm not trying to make a joke. And some people have done that from this book. But we're not going to. This is a holy book. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Same Holy Spirit that inspired Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Inspired Song of Songs. It's in the Bible. We're going to try to learn from it, and I hope you'll be encouraged. But we're going to start with Song of Songs, chapter 1. So if you don't know much about the book, let me go ahead and tell you as we're reading through this text that it's really a song. Don't miss the fact that it is called a song for a reason. It was intended to be sung. And so there's parts where the lady is, is singing. There's parts where the man with whom she's in love and going to marry, he's singing. And then there's parts where a chorus breaks in. So we're going to walk through this. Song of Songs, chapter 1. Here's what the Word of God says. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Here's the lady. She's talking. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Your translation may say like oil poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me to his chambers. And then the chorus breaks in, and the lady's chorus says, We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And so the lady begins again in verse 5. I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Light the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They have made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companion? And now the guy responds, the man responds, If you yourself do not know, most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock And pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. To me, my darling, you're like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. And apparently the chorus breaks in again here in verse 11 and they sing. And we will make for you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. And now the lady breaks in. She's responding in verse 12. While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me as a pouch of myrrh, which lies all night between my breast. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of En And here he says to her, Oh, how beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. And She responds, How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses are cedars, our rafters cypresses. The Song of Songs, God's Book of Romance, and this morning we're going to talk about falling in love. One of the most famous romances in American history was between F. Scott Fitzgerald, the author of The Great Gatsby, and his wife, Zelda. It was famous not only for the passion they shared, but because it was so tumultuous. They were an unlikely match. F. Scott Fitzgerald came from a family which had a long history of economic bust and boom. They would have money, then they would have no money. He was placed on academic probation when he was at Princeton, so he dropped out of college in 1917 to join the Army in an effort to serve during World War II. While he was stationed at Camp Sheridan outside of Montgomery, Alabama, he met the lovely young Zelda Sayre. Now, her family was completely different from his. This is why they were an unlikely match. Her father was a very respected judge. They came from money and position and standing, and F. Scott Fitzgerald's family had none of those things. But he was struck. He met her at a dance at a country club outside of Montgomery, and they fell in love and. He was smitten by her, but she didn't want to marry him because he had no job and no prospects for the future. He got out of the army. He never made it to Europe. The war ended before he went over there. And so he's out of the army, no job, no prospects for the future. And so this is an unlikely romance. But he actually proposed to her in 1919, but because he had no money, she said no to which every daddy said, amen. But nonetheless, when Scribner's, the famous publishing house Scribner's, again, again, They recognized his talent and in 1920 they published his book, This Side of Paradise, which immediately made him famous and also gave him money. And so they were wed on April 3rd, 1920. And it was downhill after that. The success of This Side of Paradise meant that they had money and they spent the 1920s living up the very epitome of the Roaring Twenties. They blew through as much money as they possibly could. They're bouncing back and forth from one side of the Atlantic to the other between New York and Paris. At one point she is a, a ballet dancer and all sorts of things and they had parties and they were known, and I quote, by that generation as the prince and princess of their generation. They were called the prince and the princess of the not roaring 20s, the roaring 1920s. And at their parties they invited people like Ernest Hemingway and Pablo Picasso and I don't know if Picasso ever tried to do a painting of them. That would have been interesting to see. But nonetheless, you had all these uh, people, famous people, running around with them. But they were insanely jealous of each other. So much so that at one, one time, Zelda laid down in front of a car and dared him to run her over. And uh, he almost did, and it had to end that. One night they had a party where she thought he was looking at another woman. And you can't make this stuff up. You cannot invent this stuff. But this really happened. How? I don't know. But they're at this dinner party they're hosting. And she gets so jealous at him, somehow she convinces the guests to give her their jewelry. She puts it in a boiling pot of water and says she's making soup with everyone's jewelry somehow to get back at F. Scott Fitzgerald. And then, to top it all off, she took her clothes, put them in the bathtub, and set them on fire during the party. Now, I tell you that story for several reasons. One is it makes me feel a lot better about my family family can I get an amen because we've got some redneck background but as of yet no one has burned their clothes in the bath club during the Christmas dinner we haven't got there yet but we might but not yet Um, but the thing I point out to you is they had the in love experience but it ended in chaos in fact it ended in his alcoholism and her mental illness she tragically died in a fire at a a uh mental health facility in Asheville, North Carolina in 1948. So they had all the rush and the pleasure of the in love experience, but they had all the tragedy and chaos that goes with it as well. What we want to learn from Song of Songs chapter one is the in love experience doesn't have to be that way. Uh, You can tame it, you can master it and put it under the Lordship of the Holy Spirit and it can be a wonderful and a blessed thing it doesn't have to end in this sort of chaos with clothes burning in the bathtub during a party it doesn't have to end that way. You can actually put it under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and this morning we're going to learn from Song of Songs chapter 1 about the in love experience. We're going to learn three character traits of the in love experience and then we're going to learn five limitations of the in love experience you can follow along in your bulletin and I hope that you will. So first First of all let's talk about the first character trait of the in love experience and that is the excitement of falling in love let's look at verse one let me give you a little background the song of songs which is solomon's it's difficult to know what the verse is saying it may be saying that solomon is the author of this song it may be saying that this entire song is dedicated to solomon i tend toward the second Uh, second interpretation but the fact is it's the song of songs which is Solomon's and Some have suggested it is actually an anthology, a collection of love poems that is dedicated to Solomon. Some have suggested there is a narrative here. There seems to be a narrative. It's difficult to follow. And some of the challenge of this book is the, the use of ancient Semitic imagery, ancient poetic imagery that doesn't communicate to us today. And we'll try to explain that. But just to remind you, there are basically three main characters in the book. There's the shepherd, that's the guy, there's the girl in which, whom he's in love with. And then there is a female chorus that breaks in from time to time. Uh, my, again, I respect David Jeremiah so very much. He strongly argues that Solomon is the author. He may have been. I just don't know verse 1. Does it mean dedicated to Solomon, Solomon's the author? It doesn't really matter for our interpretive purposes. But God gives us warnings about sexual immorality in the book of Proverbs, which is from Solomon. But here in the Song of Songs, it's not a book of warnings, it's a book of celebration. It's trying to teach us how we can celebrate the joy of of love and romantic love under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's what Dwayne Garrett says, an Old Testament scholar I respect. He says, the song of songs, unlike Proverbs, is not a series of warnings on the dangers of sexuality and the need for chastity. It is instead a celebration of the joy and passion of love. So look at verse 2. Notice what it says. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. The Hebrew grammar is emphatic. That's why if you have the New Living Translation, it says this, let him kiss me and kiss me again. Universally, the kiss is a symbol of romantic love. And so she says, oh, I am in love with this man. She is attracted to him. There is this uh, excitement that she has. She is excited. Oh, I want to kiss him and I want him to kiss me again. And she is happy about it. Once there was a young man that was going on his first date this was several years ago back before we had credit card uh, excuse me debit cards and cell phones and atms and all these things and so he's going out on a date and he had his uh, cash money to go to the movies but he's going on a date and he'd never been kissed he'd never kissed a girl and so he goes to his dad and he says dad i got my money for the date but i don't even have any cash uh, gas in my old hot rod can you give me some gas money and again this is before the days of atms and the dad says well son uh, I'm kind of cash poor right now, but I tell you what, I've got a full tank of gas out there in my pickup truck. Why don't you siphon some gas out of my pickup truck and put it in your car? I don't mind if you do. Now, if you, don't, if you are not culturally elite enough to know what siphoning is, uh, siphoning is some kind, sometimes called a South Broadway credit card, but nonetheless, it's syph- siphoning gas. You take a hose, and you took it down in a gas tank, and you suck, and you spit, and you suck. Has anybody here ever siphoned gas? Help me out. Amen. We have a very elite crowd. Some of you are not as cultured as the rest of us. But uh, siphoning, you suck and you spit. You suck and you spit until you get a little vacuum created. And then, you know what? The gas starts coming out. So he did that. He suck and spit, suck and spit, suck and spit. And he gets uh, three or four gallons of gas for his date. And it's all good. He go, takes her out have a wonderful time at the movies. And he doesn't know what to do. He's never kissed a girl. And so he's standing on her uh, front porch, and she's kind of shy. And he's kind of shy. And finally says, well, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to give her a good night kiss. And he steps up, and he turns her over like Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara. And he gives her a kiss uh, that was just for the ages. And he gets done, and he slings her back. And she looks at him, and he looks at her, and she said, my goodness. Where did you learn to kiss like that? He said, siphoning gas. That's where I learned how to kiss. (laughs) It's a universal symbol of love. And that's what she says here. For the Shulamith, the senses of touch and taste come together. And notice what she says. Your love is better than wine. Here's the point. His kiss is sweet like wine and his kisses are intoxicating. There's actually some science behind this uh, this attraction there's behind this we are somewhat familiar with the effects of estrogen and testosterone on the feelings of love, but God designed the human brain to release dopamine and norepinephrine. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. When we are attracted, these are these uh, neurotransmitters up in the brain. Fascinating stuff. These chemicals make us giddy and euphoric, and even suppress appetite. And that's why people say, "Who needs food? I'm in love. Who needs to study? I'm in love." And young man falls in love, and he's just all he can. He's obsessed with the girl. She's all she. He can think about, she's upset. He's all she can think about. Their grades drop. When somebody falls in love, their grades go through the floor. My goodness. I'm telling you, my grades went up after I got married because I'd spent all my time over at Lisa's house. and think about Lisa, and now suddenly I had time to study after I got married. But um, you have this intoxication. And in fact, these are the same neurotransmitters that are associated with drug addiction. It's the same sort of thing. So you get hooked on these things, the rush. That's why Robert uh, Palmer wasn't lying when you said you might as well face it. You're addicted to love. There's something going on there. This is exciting. And then notice what she says. Your fragrance is pleasing. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Oh, the scent of smell. He had used appropriate ointments. He'd taken a bath. Gentlemen, I would remind you that no matter how long you've been married, it's still good to take a bath and use some aftershave. <laughs> a gentle reminder but then she says, your name is like perfume poured out or like oil poured out. A lot of people have tossed around what this means. It's pretty simple to me. Your name. I just can't stop saying your name. Oh, your name. And you remember that when you're in love. You, just, you would just say his name or you'd say her name. Lisa, Lisa, Lisa. Oh, that name just sounds beautiful. I mean, the flowers are blooming when you say this name. And uh, so that's what she's saying. I just can't stop saying your name. I can't stop thinking about you. It's like oil poured out. And then notice what it says in verse four draw me near to you and let us run together. The the terminology here is fascinating. That phrase, draw me near to you, take me away. It says, let us run together, but really, take me away. That same terminology is used in the book of Jeremiah. The Hebrew term, same terms used to describe prisoners being taken captive in a war. And she's basically saying, take me, your prisoner. I'm so happy. Yes, take me away. And then she calls him the king. Do you see this? The king has brought me into his chambers. Uh, some suggest this is really Solomon. But I, I think what's going on here is that when you're in love, everybody's, every guy is a king, every girl is a queen. She's using this strong language. It's take me away with you. Falling in love is exciting. It's thrilling. And so let's not pretend that it's not. It's exciting. But it also comes with anxiety. Not only is there the excitement of falling in love, there's the anxiety of falling in love. Look at verses 5 through 7. And here the lady talks. And she has all these conflicted feelings about her appearance. And people can have anxiety about their appearance. Uh, We live in a culture that has made External physical beauty and idol, and if you're not cut and buff, or if you're not uh, these computer-generated images they put on the cover of magazines, it is disheartening. It ticks me off at point what uh, what Madison Avenue in Hollywood does. I have two daughters who are strikingly beautiful, and I love them both very much, and I'm so very proud of them. And I get angry at Madison Avenue when they hold up these ridiculous standards of beauty to my little girls. Let me just tell you something. Psalm 139 says you are fearfully and wonderfully made don't let Madison Avenue steal that joy from you but she has some anxiety about her appearance notice what she says first of all uh, a woman can feel delighted about her appearance look in verse 5 I am black but lovely an uh, entire line of ladies uh, hair care products based on this uh, verse right here is where they got their name she says I'm dark like the tents of Kedar there's some wordplay here in the Hebrew Kedar is an array tribe and their tents were of black goat skin and so she had dark skin and an outdoor appearance and perhaps even an athletic book and then she says I'm dark like the tents of Kedar like the curtains of Solomon that word curtains there really refers to the tapestries that were uh, a royal king might have someone with money and wealth and she says I, I realize that I am physically attractive and I realized that my dark and tanned and athletic appearance and She is both hardened by the elements, yet she is beautiful. But then notice what happens. Every man has experienced this if you've been married or ever in love. Because she goes immediately from feeling positive about herself in verse 5 to all these conflicted feelings, and she is defensive in verse 6. Have you ever been there? Darling, you look beautiful. Oh, I know I look good. I look beautiful. And then the next moment, you sure? Are you positive? Yes, I'm positive. You really do. Well, she's conflicted. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. Don't stare at me because I'm dark. I've been darkened by the sun. Now she's defensive. Standards of beauty change from culture to culture. And in that culture, a pale indoor look was preferred, and she's defensive about it. She said, well, all these ladies up in Jerusalem, they got all the money. They've been inside, but I've been outside. And notice what she says. Uh, uh, do not stare at me because I am swarthy for the sun has burned me my mother's sons were angry with me do you see what happens Uh, she gets even disappointed about her appearance not only is she defensive don't stare at me but now she's disappointed second half of verse 6 my mother's sons were angry with me they made me the caretaker of the vineyards but I'm not taking care of my own vineyards she said they made me go out and work in the fields but my own vineyard my own appearance I've not been able to take care of So I want to stop and make a point of application here real quickly before we move on. Appearance is important, and we should put our best foot forward for our spouses and try to do our best to to make ourselves presentable. But I want to make sure we all understand something before we move on. We live in a world where you and I are, you were attracted to the person to whom you're married initially. Listen, when I first met Lisa... My first thought when I met Lisa was not. You know, I bet she's the best exegete of the Bible ever. I know, I bet she has got Bible passages memorized. That was not my first thought when I met her. My first thought when I met her was in the King James, she looketh good. That was my first thought, right? And so, but we're drawn to people because they're attractive. You do realize that spiritually, you and I, We're not attractive at all to God. What does Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 say? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. There was nothing attractive about us, but Jesus Christ died for us anyway. That is amazing. There's nothing attractive about us. So the love of God is far different from ours. But this in-love experience, you can be defensive about your appearance. But then also, there's this anxiety about absence. You can have anxiety about absence. Tell me. Oh, you whom my soul loves, verse 7, where do you pasture your flock? He, she's saying he's moved. Uh, by the way, I would point out to you, he had a flock. He was a shepherd. All the daddies listened. All the teenage girls listened. He had a J-O-B. And beyond that, beyond that, he had some capital. He owned flocks. Amen. I mean, I'm scared to death my daughter's going to come home with a philosophy major. Man, they are moving in. I know it. because remodel the basement. But anyway, get a job. Well, so she, she's, where are you at? You've, where, where are your flocks at? You've moved. I don't know where you're at. I can't find you. And where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down? For She doesn't know where he's at, and there's some anxiety. And so when you're dating someone and you're in love, there's this anxiety of absence. I wonder where they're at. I wonder what they're doing. Oh, I don't know. So when Lisa and I started dating, uh, we'd been seeing each other for a while. And one night, it was a Saturday night, we didn't go out. She had something to do with a, an organization she was involved with, and she was off in another part of the state. And I went to a culturally significant event with my friend Rocky Forrester, went to the drag strip. And so we're at the drag strip, culturally significant event. So we're there, and we it's Southeastern International Dragway. It's gone because all the yuppies moved in. They didn't like the noise. Well, wham, wham. Anyway, they bulldozed, and it's gone. But that's where we're at on Saturday night, Dallas, Georgia. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, I wonder where Lisa's at. I wonder what she's doing. And and suddenly, Lisa showed up uh, walking up the bleachers at the drag strip, and she'd been thinking about me as well. "Well, I wonder what he's doing. Oh, he's sitting at the drag strip. So we just can't wait to be together. So there's this anxiety about absence when you're in love. Where's that person at? What are they doing? That anxiety can continue when you're married. Toughest year of our marriage was 2011 and 2012 when I was deployed to the Middle East with the United States Army. Chaplain for the 821st Transportation Battalion out of Topeka, Kansas, up the road here. Uh, heavy equipment transporters. It was a tough year. We were in, based in Kuwait, missions in and out of Iraq, and there was anxiety in that absence. To maintain operational security, I would go on these missions with my soldiers for about a week at a time up in Iraq, and I couldn't break operational security, so i just have to send Lisa an email. Hey, I won't be able to talk to you for a few days, and she knew what that meant. She knew that meant I was off in Iraq. And then the second half of our deployment, I went to Afghanistan for a while. And there are times I said, I'm flying around. I can't tell you where I'm going. But... So there's anxiety about absence. When, and I guess it was February of 2012, Lisa was actually diagnosed with diabetes. She wound up in the hospital. So she's in the hospital, I'm apart from her, and I had, man, I have to be honest, I know 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your care upon the Lord because he cares for you. But when you're sitting in Kuwait and your wife's in a hospital in Liberty, Missouri, I mean, it, it's, you're there, right? And so we had anxiety about our absence. We missed each other. But we never had anxiety about each other's character. We had anxiety of absence, but there was no anxiety of character because I knew I had married a woman of character and she knew that I was trying my best to be a man of character. There was no concern about what was going on. So there's anxiety of absence, but there was never anxiety of character. You always want to marry for character, I cannot tell you, because good looks may attract you. Their character is what you got to live with. So the anxiety of falling in love... And I would just tell you, I want to encourage you as husbands and wives to notice something that happens next. Uh, look, there's not only the anxiety, but there's the attraction of falling in love. Notice verse 8. There's the excitement, there's the anxiety, there's the attraction. Look at verse 8. And so the chorus responds, if you don't know most beautiful among, y- among women, go forth in, on the trail of the flock. So they're praising her beauty. And verse 9, notice what he says. The guy says to her, to me, my darling, you're like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Now, you know what he just did? He just called her a horse. You understand that? Baby, you're like a horse. And you're like, some of you ladies again don't call me a horse. That's not good. We're going to be in Dr. Branch's office for marriage therapy. No, that's so don't call me a horse. But you have to put it in context. So there's a couple of things going on here. Usually, stallions pulled the chariots of the Pharaoh. But instead, he says, you're like a mare. And he says, it's, you're like the only girl in a world full of men to me. But also, these stallions that pulled the chariots of Pharaoh were ornamented. And they had all sorts of uh, things that would befit the office of Pharaoh. Said all this beautiful ornamentation he says you're like that you're just and then it goes on and talks about jewelry and all the ladies said amen yes praise God so uh, guys you know why you don't buy jewelry for your wife you know why because what she wants you can't afford and what you can afford she doesn't want you understand that guys and so but there's all this talk of jewelry here and and he's saying you look baby and so I know it's kind of hard for us you're like a mayor to one of pharaoh's chariots but if i can put it in 21st century language this is what he'd be saying baby if you were a car you'd be a ferrari okay that's what i'm saying and to quote lady antebellum he's just saying baby you look good that's all he's saying darling you look good and and i'm happy and he's attracted because of her physical beauty and then notice what else the fragrance Uh, verse 12 Notice what it says, while the king was at his table my perfume gave forth its fragrance. She was taking, she has taken every effort to prepare herself including the tasteful use of fragrance and then she compliments him on his fragrance and she says something very tender here. If, if you don't catch this, it's actually very beautiful. She says um, my, in verse 13, my beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night between my breasts. She's saying it's like he is a, he's like a, uh, an ornament on a on a necklace and I have him right here close to my heart I got him right where I want him he's right here it's a very tender scene you know I've, I've talked to a number of widowers over the years and I've heard this several times that men would tell me after the wife had died they go into the closet and she's been gone for a couple of months but they catch a hint of her perfume and those tender and wonderful memories flood back from that sense of smell. What a tender thing. Listen, uh, did you know that there's actually a spike in divorce rates after the kids move out of the house? Have you heard of this? That if you watch the divorce rates over a lifetime, they kind of spike around six years and then it goes down. And then around 20 to 25 years in a lot of marriages, the divorce rates spike again. It's because couples, it's called the empty nest syndrome. Couples have kind of lost touch with each other. Man, I had a good week this week. Talking about the empty nest. I had a hallelujah week. You know, I'm telling you, I had, I I need some of my deacons. You made rain. I almost got Pentecostal this week. Let me tell you what happened. My oldest daughter, whom I love, she's an awesome young lady. She loves the Lord. She works hard. And she'd had a hard time finding a job in her particular field. And this week, she got a job. She got a job. She got a job. It's got insurance and retirement. And when I got the call in my office, I jumped up my desk and I did a little Holy Ghost dance around. And I was like, woo! And, you know, I know we don't believe in a second blessing, but I may have needed some of the deacons to interpret what I was saying. I may have been in an unknown tongue at that moment. I don't know. I was, whoo! Can I get an amen? Amen. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. I was so gloriously happy. Um, I'm looking forward to the empty nest. You know why? Because we spent 30 years pouring into each other. And praise God, they're going to leave, right? I mean, that's the point. And to grow up and leave. Fly, little bird. Um... And don't stop praising each other. Verses 16 and 17, how handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. And then verse 17, something interesting. The beams of our houses are cedars, our rafters are cypresses. You know what they're having here? This is a picnic scene. This is a picnic scene. She's laid the uh, notice what again it says our Our couch is luxuriant. This is a couch of grass and they've had a tender little picnic out in the middle of somewhere. They're in love and it's like the world is their own. They've got this house, if you will, it's figurative speech of the the trees that are overshadowing them and they're off together and it's tender and it's holy and it's wonderful. This is such a romantic scene and the in love experience is romantic and you need to celebrate it for all that. But listen very carefully to what I'm about to tell you. It has limitations. I'm going to go through these very quickly, and we're going to be done. But listen carefully. I have five limitations. If you don't get these limitations to the in-love experience, it can be destructive. So let's talk about the limitations. First of all, it has a time limit. The in-love experience has a time limit. People who know about these things, psychologists, psychiatrists, have studied all this 18 to 24 months, and it wears off. And so then you have to learn how to live with each other. Um, Let me explain how this time limit kind of works. I told this years ago when I was here back in 2007. Some of you may remember it, but there was a young preacher... And he had two young ladies as potential brides. And one was quite lovely but couldn't sing. The other one could sing but maybe not so, so blessed uh, in attractiveness. And he couldn't decide which one he wanted to marry. The young preacher didn't know which one he wanted to marry. And so he, But he, was, he, he decided to go with a young lady that could sing. And he fell in love with her. And the romance was torrid and happy and wonderful. And they got married. And about 18 months into their marriage, he woke up one morning. And she hadn't uh, applied cosmetics yet. And she hadn't fixed her hair yet. And they were sitting across the kitchen table from each other. And and, uh, he decided to marry her because of her wonderful voice. But there she was in all her morning glory at 630. And he just looked at her and said, sing, Matilda, sing. Please sing, right? You know, (laughs) because... The the in-love experience had worn off, and so he was at a whole different level. It has a time limit, and you're all going to reach that point in marriage where you say, good night. When uh, when you're in the in-love experience, they're just like, they can do no wrong. And then about two, two and a half years into marriage, you're like, this person needs Xanax. That's what they need. They they need a psychiatrist, and I'm just going to put salt licks around the yard with Prozac in it. So they'll go, whatever. It has a time limit. It can, second warning is this, it can blind us to serious problems. We're in love with them. And so everybody else sees the problems, but they're in love. He's just perfect. There's nothing wrong with him. And everybody else says, you know, uh, that thing on his ankle, you know, you know when's the court going to take that off? And, you know, he he doesn't, he can't seem to hold down a job. And what's going on with this guy? But I'm in love. It's all wonderful. And I notice you're paying for every day. Oh, it's all good. It's wonderful. I'm in love. It can blind you to serious problems. Everybody else sees it, but we don't because we're in love. We'll be talking about those next week, those uh, challenges, how not to marry a jerk or a jerkette. Third, I'm serious. That's the title of the sermon, How Not to Marry a Jerk or a Jerkette. Next week, you come here. Somebody says, what if you've already married a jerk? That's a different sermon. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Watch out. Better be careful. I may see some of y'all in my office this week. Anyway, it can make... It can make love seem effortless. That's the third warning. Because we're so intoxicated, we, feel like we just don't have to do any work. Listen, a successful marriage and a successful romance over years and years takes lots of work and lots of effort. It's not effortless. Fourth, it can be self-centered. I'm in love with them. They're going to meet all my needs. I have all these, I, and sometimes people go around, it's like they had this vacuum, this spiritual and emotional vacuum, and they're looking for somebody to plug in and suck all the life out of them. And they're expecting another, listen, another fallen person will never meet your deepest needs. You need a perfect person. You are marrying a sinner. I ought to have people do this at the altar when I do weddings. They just say, I accept you as a sinner. Okay, I accept you as a, we're both sinners if all you've got in a relationship is two sinners, all you're going to see is each other's sinning. you're going to get mad and beat each other. You need somebody in your marriage who has never sinned. You need somebody in your marriage who is perfect. You need somebody in your marriage who is tempted in all ways, just as we are, yet without sin. Where are you going to find somebody like that? You'll find him on a hill called Calvary. His name is Jesus Christ. And listen, you need Jesus. Another fallen person is never going to meet your deepest needs, never going to solve your sin problems. You're You're making an idol out of them. You're asking them to do something only the Savior's supposed to do. that really leads to the last warning. And that is that the in-love experience is no replacement for agape. Agape. The in-love experience is all based on these external things, this attractiveness. And it's not evil if we understand it. God designed all these things. But we have to put them in the proper perspective. The in-love experience is based on someone's attractiveness agape is god's love for us and it is not defined by the fact god loves us because we are attractive agape is defined by god loves us even though we are not attractive there's nothing beautiful in us there's nothing redeeming in us and you need agape jesus christ His death for our sins, His burial, His glorious resurrection over death, hell, and the grave is where real love starts at. And you're never going to know how to love someone to whom you're married or whom you think you want to get married until you come to the foot of the cross. And agape begins when we bow our knee to the Savior. Listen, remember how I told you that in love experience has a time limit? The love of God is endless. It is as eternal as God is. And when we're saved, we are eternally secure. Well, listen, we don't lose our salvation. Jesus is holding on to us. It is the eternal security of Christ, and it's agape. And some of you have been chasing the in love experience for years and years and years. You've bounced from one rush to another. And when that 18 or 24 month period wore off, you dumped that one, you went to somebody else, and you sucked all the life out of that. And when that 18 or 24 month period wore out, you went to someone else, and it sucked all the life, and it's just been a train and a train. I have met overgrown adolescents at 40 and 45 and 50 years old still tracing the in love experience. Listen, it was never meant to satisfy your deepest need. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And some Some of you have been chasing this in-love rush for years, and it's left you broken and empty and crushed. And this morning, you need Jesus Christ. You need Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. No one looking up, no one looking around. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. Brother Andy's going to come up here, and we're about to have our closing hymn of appeal. I want to talk to two groups of people. Listen carefully to the preacher for just a second. This is our time for appeal for you to respond to the gospel. First, you may be here and you are saved and you're a Christian and you know it. And that has been settled for years and Jesus is your Lord and Savior. But you have not surrendered romance and the person to whom you will marry to God. I'm talking about single adults now. There's nothing wrong with the in love experience when it's understood in its proper context. But some of you this morning need to make some commitments. Dear God... I'm surrendering my love life and my romance to you, and I'm making you Lord of it. There may be some of you here, and you have been saved, but you've not been obedient to baptism the way the Bible says. The Bible says that we're baptized after we're saved. And you know you've trusted Christ, but this morning you need to come forward and make your public profession To let other people know, yes, you've trusted Christ, but you want to be obedient to him in baptism. There's some of you here who've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And the world is taking something good. Your own flesh is taking something good, falling in love, and turned it into an idol. And you've been chasing that idol for years. And this morning, you need to lay that idol down and surrender your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Brother Chris is here at the front. Brother Andy's here at the front. My wife Lisa here is here at the front. We'll take all the time you need to pray with you. And you can know Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And you can know the agape love that never changes. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, if you need to commit as a single Christian, your love life, this whole in love experience to God, you come. If you need to be baptized, you come. If you need to be saved, you come. Father, I pray in the name of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, thank you, God, for agape. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that your love does not change. It's not based on how we look or our beauty or our attractiveness. It's based on your grace. And God, I pray this morning people will receive the grace of Jesus Christ and their life will be changed. God, I ask it. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. The Savior's waiting. Stand to your feet while they're singing. You come. Please, right now, don't you wait.